This is Aider and a Better. My name is Avi Singh. I'm here with Sajid Khan. Sajid, what up? What up, Avi? Today we are joined by Scott Heckinger with the Brooklyn Defender Service. Scott, welcome. So glad to be on. Finally. <laughs> An overdue appearance uh, with a cabinet secretary, at the very least, of the Ader Nation. We are going to talk with Scott about what's been happening in Montgomery County with the public defenders who spoke out in favor of representation during bail hearings. We're also going to talk about the zealous movement to activate public defenders and other organizers to make change happen. And finally, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about public defense during a potential pandemic, you know, pandemic public defense. Scott, thank you so much for coming on. Can you uh, tell us just a little bit about yourself, how long you've been a public defender, you know, what gets you juiced about the work, just so we can get to know you a little bit? I've unofficially been a public defender since basically the first day of law school when I was fortunate enough to see and hear Brian Stevenson speak. He taught at my law school. I came into law school not really knowing what issue I wanted to work on. And then I heard him speak and I was like, done, criminal justice. And I'm tethering myself to that dude and I'm becoming a public defender. So I was like, literally like decided within a day. And uh, it was, I, I got to, had the good fortune to be able to work with them on early state-by-state research on what ultimately became his arguments in the Supreme Court around juvenile life without parole. I got to see him argue that case, which was amazing. I didn't get any special ticket. I camped out overnight on First Street and wait in line. Uh, but in any event, I he, he encouraged me early on to, to look into public defense, and I looked into it. I went down to New Orleans, was in the first intern class down there, and it was a mess. I mean, they were running arraignments, so the first, first appearances from the uh, New Orleans Parish prison loading dock via video conference. This was a couple of years after Katrina, and my job as an intern was to run these hastily gathered bail arguments as we kind of went down the line and talked to the individuals who already were in orange jumpsuits, yeah. um, just to find out a little bit more. And my job is to run that bail argument three blocks away in the blazing hot heat to the one public defender who was sitting in the witness box in the magistrate court uh, making the argument as the judge looked at a sea of, of literally black cases. You couldn't make them out indiscernible with orange jumpsuits. Mm. And for a lot of people, <laughs> Um, I think y'all can appreciate this to be like, I, this is not for me and for, for, you know, public defenders for that, that that's kind of like our bread and butter. It's like, we, we are for whatever reason attracted to, to hell in the hopes that we can kind of one case at a time and some cases systemically try to mess the system up and make it fair for people. And so that really drove me. And I, I uh, continued to do defense work throughout law school and joined uh, Brooklyn Defender Services in 2012. And Brooklyn Defender Services represents uh, half of everyone arrested in Brooklyn. And we also have a massive immigration practice, family defense practice, wraparound services. We're really blessed with extraordinary resources, 50 social workers, civil rights attorneys. Despite all that, early on, I, I got the sense and realized very quickly that that, that, ide- that ideal of public defenders, even in well-resourced offices, being able to tilt the broad imbalance of justice, so really transform the system in court, was limited by laws and practices and racism and status quo and really committed myself to trying to figure out ways and, and was supported by my office to to take the experience and take the, the the crap that we see every day and work closely with the people who we serve to try to shed some light on what goes on inside of court, outside of court. That has led to a lot of different types of advocacy from 
creating uh, new media advocacy and video projects to thinking more critically around being uh, proactive when it comes to press. So really identify, being able to identify as an office systemic issues no one's talking about, working with the people who we serve to kind of have agency and partnership in the storytelling and then pitch that story, working really closely with a range of coalitions and organizers and directly impacted people in New York. And this all culminated over the course of six or seven years and last year winning real historic, in my mind, I would say modest, but still historic in the range of wins bail reform in New York and in cash bail for the majority of misdemeanors and nonviolent felonies and um, discovery reform. After that win, uh, it just occurred to to us that we were onto something, onto something that you guys, frankly, have been onto for a long time, thinking about this intersection of practice and policy, this fact that public defenders um, have extraordinarily unique perspective, um, and we also have unique relationships with those we serve and have a role to play in the broader, not only discourse, but the fight to, to end mass criminalization and transform the system. That's how the idea of Frizellus came about. And I uh, was fortunate to be able to, to raise some funds and fly 52 uh, defenders in from, I think it was 27 different states, 42 different offices for a weekend of, of learning, mostly from people that were not public defenders. So organizers, social media influencers, journalists, some public defenders, but litigators on how to tell stories, how to work with the people who we serve in communities that we serve for greater impact. And yeah, we missed you, Avi. Um, but, but, but I would say, I, but actually, oddly enough, and Sajid can, can, can back me on this. You were very present. You were, you were, yeah. you were called out a number of times and not in a bad way. Yeah, it was a little shit talking. I don't know if we're allowed to curse on this. <laughs> I Sorry. defend myself. <laughs> you know, I, took a pic- I took a picture of uh, Raj quoting Avi in one of his presentations, Raj Jayadev, and I sent it to Avi. And uh, yeah, the uh, Ader, Ader and a better presence was, was strong uh, in Brooklyn. Yeah. I mean, Avi. Avi, I was going to say, though, but just on what Sajid said, like your your comment was so apropos. Everything that we are talking about now, and everything we were talking about then, and Raj cited this this comment by you about injustice happening in in empty courtrooms, and that couldn't be more true. And it's the same kind of outside, I think, by seeding the the narrative to pro carceral forces, we wind up having this kind of emptiness where our voices should be heard as obviously the voices of the people we serve outside of court for broader systemic change as well. One of the things, Scott, that you've, that you've become known for and that you trained on there at the Zealous um, program was Twitter for public defenders. And when we talk about uh, injustice happening in empty courtrooms, what you've done is you've taken to Twitter to tell the stories of what's happening inside these courtrooms and inside our inside the jails, uh, things that we as public defenders have proximity and access to that perhaps the rest of the world doesn't. Um, So can you talk about what it's uh, been like to take to Twitter to effectuate change and tell the stories of the people we represent and to be a voice of public defense kind of in the broader society? And if I could just add, you know, as you think about that, I would love to think about, you know, what it was like, you know, before hitting send on the first arraignment tweet. You tell such rich stories now, you know, about what's happening. You can really feel like you're there with the clients if you're on Twitter following your threads. But I'd love to hear what you're because it can be a little fraught. Absolutely. So Twitter is a is a is an incredible platform, it turns out, not just for defenders, but really for for social justice um, storytelling for a range of reasons, how it forces you to be very concise, you know, and so forces you to really tell powerful stories in a little bit and pack a punch. But also who's 
on Twitter. These are, they're journalists, so you have access to folks who are going to be amplifying your cause, to influencers, et cetera. So I, I was totally, I've been totally surprised. I, two years ago, had a couple hundred followers and was definitely mostly a passive observer. And when I would tweet occasionally, really not about work, uh, I would get zero likes and zero re retweets, which was annoying, not from the standpoint that I wasn't getting attention. It was just like, I guess no one's listening listening to what I was saying. And so the first the first tweet, I was actually in arraignments, but I wasn't working arraignments. I was sitting with a criminal justice journalist. So someone who is steeped in these issues, who is writing a story like many uh, journalists do about like the hottest issue, which was which was bail. And I was kind of giving them a tour, pointing out stuff in the courtroom. And this uh, this thing happened. This thing happened that was very clear to me as a public defender, something we see all the time. It was someone who was arrested on a warrant for failure to pay a fine, was hauled in in handcuffs, was had his retina scanned, was brought in front of a judge and the judge resentenced him to the max on the violation, which is 15 days in jail. It happened in a flash. They used the language of the courtroom. So they were talking in penal codes. And anyway, it, it happened in a flash and its head dropped down and he went back uh, into the back of the uh, behind the courtroom behind and got we trust where the, the cages are, the holding cells where we interview clients. And then the journalist turned to me and I thought he was going to ask a question about what had just happened. And he had totally missed what just happened. And he asked me about some something that happened two cases ago. What occurred to me in that moment was even folks who are steeped in these issues, let alone just you know everyday people who are going into court and court watching without any kind of training. There's a language of court. There's a distance. There's acoustics. The acoustics are terrible. And it's so easy to miss these everyday injustices that add up, that have obviously enormous impact on individuals, but also add up in the aggregate and really drive this heavy, massive, horrific system. And so I just was like, huh, let me write about that. Thoughts. I wrote, you know, about how public defenders, you know, need to keep our eyes and ears open to these everyday injustices, not become blasé to them. I told this quick story. This is back when uh, it was 140 characters, so it had to be even, even briefer. And I got, yeah, and I got, and I got like 10 retweets, but which, which was like really exciting. Again, not because, ooh, people are paying attention. Like, ooh, I got, I got retweets for retweets' sake. It meant that people actually were responding to something that wasn't, again, a 20-year wrongful um, wrongful conviction and incarceration on death row and exoneration, which, you know, is obviously horrible, but is not indicative of the everyday trauma and horrific violence of, of jail and caging and criminalization we see every day. And so from there, I just continued to experiment. And to your to your question, Sajid, like my the way that I tweet and the considerations that I take into account before I write a tweet and the way that I tell stories and thinking critically about how and whether I'm going to center myself in a particular story or disappear completely has evolved dramatically over the time that I've been tweeting. You know, one because this was fairly uncharted territory when I started, and um, you know, it's just thinking more critically about you know, consent issues and privilege and issues of ethics. Also, other practical things of perception of who I am. I mean, I'm the same person I was two years ago, absent or other than like more gray hair and less sleep because I have a kid and obviously I'm, you know, had difference of experience, et cetera. But but with the number of followers that I've gotten, there's this, I can't write the same kind of tweets because they come across as, Oh, like 
hero worship or savior porn or poverty porn, which are all like really important things to be aware of. And it's, but it's been somewhat surprising where the pushback has come from. And the pushback mostly has not come from folks from the outside of the system. It's mostly come from other public defenders. And I've been kind of actively and avidly listening because I think it's a constant learning process. What are the criticisms or what are the uh, detractors um, telling you? Well, I mean, so some of it is some of it is just, you know, annoyance of annoyance. And it's changed over time because I, I shifted uh, how I tweet and how I center myself in the story. A lot of it was pushback of, oh, this guy doesn't care about his clients. He just cares about attention and or he just cares about likes and retweets and that hurt frankly because likes and retweets it's for a cause the purpose of it is in order to get the message out further likes and retweets if anyone knows how twitter works is translate to impressions which turn into more eyes on an injustice and therefore more knowledge and i always try to tie everything i write about to direct action to the extent possible so i was like that's one thing there was just there's an issue with perception and i really tried and I think succeeded to varying degrees to actually engage with the public defenders who, who pushed back. A lot of them I knew. A lot of them, frankly, were in my office. And I would engage in conversations and like keep my eyes and ears open and really try to be responsive. Some of the other things were uh, you know, differences in feelings of comfort around how much detail to provide about a particular client. And even when you know, consent was given, how consensual can can advocacy actually be a partnership with a client when they're facing the trauma of the potential that they're going to jail or the fact that they haven't slept for 24 hours and they're just getting out of jail. And so there, there's this real, there's been this real struggle, uh, both external and internal to try to figure out, not just with Twitter, but all kinds of defender storytelling and advocacy, which needs to be led by those who we represent, this balance between the need to be speaking out along with them and power dynamics and uh, just ensuring that, uh, you know, it's really in the best interest of that individual, even if it's the best interest for the cause. So these are things that I think about constantly. We thought about a ton um, as we were developing the curriculum, not just like in a back room with me and my partner, Crystal, but engaging, you know, a range, uh, dozens of kind of the leaders in a wide variety of fields from ethics and media and ethics to to other public defenders, to organizers, to directly impact the people to really try to find what that balance is. And we're still learning. So it's a tough it's a tough question. With that in mind, we started a little bit talking about Zealous. Can you talk about why Zealous was unique? Why it what why it's the kind of the first of its kind? Uh, what made it the first of its kind? Uh, what it what it exactly is and what what it, what the hope is for it to become? And for the listeners, so, is asking this while he's wearing a zealous sweatshirt, which is yeah, I, I dressed very up for nice. Today's uh, podcast, amazing. I love hearing that the swag is in full effect. There are there are public defender trainings, continuing legal education. We all know about this, where we go and we learn how to cross-examine. We learn how to write particular motions, how to deal with current issues that are coming up, like opioid-induced homicide how to write stuff about experts, how to cross-examine an expert, et cetera, how to like try a case. There are, there's an extraordinary group um, who's been around forever, uh, Gideon's Promise, led by John Rapping and his wife, um, that trains offices and defenders on culture, on how to be client-centered attorneys, uh, mostly, mostly in court. 
And you've got Raj Jayadev, who works with communities to try to break down relationships of distrust and also help defenders work better with the community and vice versa to have better outcomes in court. Where Zealous comes in is kind of this, this third rail almost, this broadening of the, the advocacy lens, this idea that defenders um, are these natural criminal justice champions. They're obviously zealous advocates in court, um, but also are uniquely positioned to see as frontline practitioners and understand how these various laws and practices in court drive mass punishment. And we also have these unique relationships with clients. And what if we could train uh, defenders on how to leverage their experience, leverage their perspective, partner with their clients and communities and organizations to help lead the movement outside of court for systemic and transformational change. It would be amazing. There's a lot of challenges to that. Number one, there's the concern that defenders speaking out and not speaking out thoughtfully, not speaking out, taking the lead of organizations and people in the communities, not thinking critically about the language that we use, we could wind up inadvertently further entrenching the status quo uh, by inadvertently using the language of the oppressor. Um, if we just go out there and start tweeting, we might accidentally give up client competences, hurt cases, hurt the cause even more. We thought it was really important to not just train defenders on this new form of advocacy, moving their advocacy outside of court, but also develop best practices in a community of defenders who are coordinated and who are trained on how to do this form of advocacy. And it's, the key is it's not just media advocacy. It's not just Twitter advocacy. It's movement building. It's campaigning. It's just talking about the issues that we see every day in a way that people can both understand and in a way that drives people through a sense of urgency to take action. And so I think it's extremely important. A lot of defenders don't. A lot of defenders are scared of this form of advocacy. A lot of defenders feel like they can't do it because their caseloads are too high. A lot of defenders don't think that we should be doing this. And our goal is in part, not only just to build this community, but also to advocate to defender offices that actually you can and you should. And there's a range of ways to take actions depending on your capacity, depending on your comfort level. And something is better than nothing. And finding out what that something is and doing it right is really helpful. And so we launched, we had this extraordinary first uh, first launch, uh, this, this, this extraordinary training. We um, are now focused on the future, not only building the community, having more trainings, not just in a, with, in a national hub, but also pushing into convenings, defender convenings that are already happening. Uh, we're developing, developing curriculum for law schools. One of the main things that came out of the the first training was a lot of defenders saying, Man, I wish I learned these skills in law school. Well-practiced defenders, folks that have been around forever being like, oh my God, like I shouldn't be saying my clients. I should be saying instead, you know, person who I serve or the community that I serve, a person who I represent instead of this it's kind really of ownership language. It's really hard to change. I've been trying my best. I've been trying my best to change. encoded. Calling, I'm early stage. calling the people we serve uh, clients as opposed to... Uh, oh, I've been, I've, I've probably said, I've, I've probably said it five times in this podcast, or it's really tough, but at least being aware of that. Um, so we're, <laughs> so we we're doing, so we're doing this. We have an explicit rating, so you can say client. <laughs> <laughs> so we're doing, we're doing these educational, uh, this educational piece, but now we have this community. And so we're also thinking about um, ways to activate the community in both local and national campaigns. And uh, working right now on developing a number of different projects. Uh, one of them we already launched, it's called Justice Not Fear. 
And uh, it's kind of the perfect example of the kind of work that we're talking about. It's public defenders in tandem with uh, with our clients. There you go. <laughs> Bleep with the people you who we represent. <laughs> with the you. people who represent. I know. And 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 local organizations actually push back against the fear mongering about bail reform going on right now. And we're also ta- we're also now looking into technical support, like how to support defender offices in developing systems to collect systemic issues, um, work with clients to give them agency and uh, enable us to work together to to tell more powerful stories and ultimately change outcomes. We're just so uh, supportive of this effort, getting our uh, our people's uh, story out, getting the experiences of what's actually happening in court, however we can do it, uh, writing, even podcasts, but with movement building, it's, it's, it feels like where this practice has to go. You, you had talked, Scott, about you know maybe public defenders or other practitioners not wanting to engage in this sort of practice. You know maybe uh, it's fraught. Maybe it, you know there's confidentiality issues. There's ethical issues that you try to unwind. But then there's also the potential for retribution or uh, for some punishment for people who speak out against injustice. And so with that in mind, I just wanted to transfer a little bit to what's happening in Montgomery County, uh, which is something you've been involved in with. Dean Beer and with Keisha Hudson, who I believe was a, a zealous uh, alum, alumna. I know there's been a lot of movement and a lot of organizing around this, but we wanted to talk a little bit uh, for folks to hear what's been happening in Montgomery County when public defenders speak out, you know, about something like the lack of representation for people who are incarcerated pending get release. Yeah, so I I was I talked to Keisha the morning um, she was fired before she was was even fired because as you mentioned she was at she was at Zealous and uh, you know I mentioned campaigns we uh, were in discussion with her uh, about creating a campaign that focused on the issue that was most near and dear to her heart which is pretrial justice in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. Like, I would say, I would say most, but the numbers are unclear. I would say a significant number of jurisdictions around the country, even in places that have public defender offices, public defenders are not funded to provide representation and counsel at first appearances. In, in, in most states, like I can tell you in, Brooklyn, in, in New York, the most important part of a case, the decision when bail is gonna be set, and because when bail is set, and I know you've talked about this a lot, the, the whole course of the case changes. And pe- the 9,000 people who are coming through Montgomery County who are called into court are standing before a judge, prosecutor next to them, having bail set without any attorney. And then there's delays, there's adjournments. So sometimes she, uh, she and her, she and her uh, fellow attorneys wouldn't meet their clients for three, five, maybe 10 days after they were already locked up, Jail, uh, jobs lost people in need of caretaking without caretakers, housing lost, cars gone. and cars gone. I mean, you, you name it, animals not fed. And as part of this effort, uh, she and her office was asked um, by uh, the Pennsylvania ACLU to file an amicus brief. So a friend of a friend of the court brief, they had brought a claim uh, against Philadelphia for their bail practices, which are very similar. And they asked Montgomery County, hey, can you 
share some stories in a brief, a legal brief to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court that tell that just will show that this problem is not uh, is not unique to Philadelphia. And so, what did they do? They just told stories, and in doing so, they advocated on behalf of their clients for a better system. They talked about how the impact that this horrible system had, and within days of them filing this legal brief, they uh, Dean was summoned to the chief judge's uh, chambers of the, of the county and was reamed out, was threatened with being uh, 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 sent to the bar ethics, making a bar ethics complaint against him and, and pushing for his firing. Within days, the county commission uh, was ordering him to withdraw the brief. Mm. And, he was, and he faced a tough decision. He faced this decision where it's like, okay, if I don't, if I don't withdraw the brief uh, and I get fired, they're going to replace me with someone who cares less about systemic justice, who cares less about clients, who is just a pushover that's going to go along with whatever the county commission says. And I should say the county commission. Yeah, exactly. In the the county commission, I'll I'll talk about independence in in a second, but, but kind of the county commission is his boss and makes all the funding decisions for his office. Am I going to lose funding for all of our clients? He had to make this decision. And he ultimately made the hard decision, and there was a lot of disagreement in the office, but he made the tough decision to withdraw the brief. He goes to the chief judge, and the chief judge says, that's not enough. I want you to come out with the formal apologies. I'm not doing that. And then the threat is that he, uh, that the pretrial justice program that they had been discussing was then, then going to be off the table. They still got fired. So Dean and Keisha get fired essentially for doing their job, right? essentially for doing their jobs, for advocating on behalf of their clients, for doing systemic advocacy. I wouldn't even say outside of court. They filed a legal brief. And for being insubordinate, they were fired. And this, what happened to them, and I'll, I'll give an update on what's going on right now, is, extraordinary, is, is extraordinary in some ways, because it's the clearest and like, most explicit example of this happening, I think, you know, throughout the, around the country. There's a crisis of independence around the country in public defender offices. Most people don't know about this. People think of public defender crises and they think about funding and they think about um, pay parity. So the difference between the pay that we may, you know, how much we get paid versus prosecutors and resources. The reality is in a lot of places, count the, the, the public defender offices are beholden to the very uh, people that they are fighting against. So the county commission, the judges in a lot of places where there aren't public defender systems at all, and the judges are appointing contract attorneys to do indigent defense cases. And so what usually happens around the country is Dean a Dean or Akisha, first of all, doesn't exist, but they don't file the motion to begin with. They don't take the, the action that they should be taking as zealous advocates because of the fear of retribution, the fear of getting the fire, the fear of losing funding. And in, so in this case, they actually took the action and and still wound up getting, getting fired. And, and we're, we're fighting. I mean, I, I, Keisha texted me that day. She couldn't believe it, but she is fired up. Uh, last week, there was a massive rally uh, during the hearing in front of the county commission, which, by the way, is only made up of three people um, who made this decision and calling on them to reinstate Keisha and Dean. Uh, Raj Dadiev, there's a participatory defense hub. He was there uh, with his organizers. And there's an extraordinary show of support, not only from the defenders in their offices, but from the communities, because they had forged and built those relationships. And um, uh, we, you know, Zealous helped connect uh, them with with uh, media outlets and sources and are continuing to push on, on that um, that as well. And Gideon's promise and uh, John Rapping, because Keisha and Dean are also closely in their office is closely involved with Gideon's promise is, is working. And so 
it's it is it's an interesting thing. I mean, you bring up it start the the question and premise of the question kind of started out as is as this this danger and this fear, and it's legitimate and it keeps yeah. advocacy from, the right advocacy from happening. But I also see right now there being a real amazing opportunity. First of all, it shows that there's a big difference than how things used to be. I don't think these county commissioners had any idea that this thing would be local news, let alone national news, like it is right now. I don't think they had any idea that hundreds of people from the community would be standing up on behalf of public defenders, this maligned group. But this is happening. And if we hours, win, four hours of public. If, if we win, guys, like you know, this sends this sends a message around the country that not only an opportunity for people to learn about the problem with independence of public defender offices, but it could send a message around the country that uh, you can't do this, and that you need that there needs to be a change in the way that the funding sources, I guess, interact with with public defenders. So we have this opportunity. If it goes wrong. Um, it's it's a really dangerous. Uh, it can send a really da dangerous message and have a major chilling effect. So uh, we are fighting. <laughs> well, and, you know, I would say you know it, it's gone wrong, and so it's like you guys are fighting, and the people are fighting to kind of write it now with a you know significant yep. stakes. Uh, this is a bad scene. Yeah, this is a bad scene, and I hope it gets changed. I do too. And it, it really, uh, your your point about um, the chilling effect, I mean, public defenders are in this really unique uh, position where we are generally uh, government employees or we're, we're obviously constitutionally mandated, but our mandate is to uh, to be the, um, the agitators, to be the ones that push back, the ones that um, stand up for the voiceless, the downtrodden, and the underrepresented and in doing so we we do push for this systemic change that you've been describing and we are not there to really make friends or to be uh, partners with other people in the system uh, our partners are the people that we serve and represent and uh, we are ultimately tasked with zealously advocating for them and being their voice bo boxes and so when something like this happens it has uh, the potential to trickle down into our courthouses in our courtrooms uh, where it muzzles or has the potential to muzzle us or suppress our voices um, suppress our advocacy and then the whole system crumbles as a result so it's a really uh, significant issue and I'm, I'm grateful that um, you and others are rallying public defenders and other folks around the cause and not letting this not letting this firing go without resistance and talk about a ridiculous line to draw right like filing an amicus brief where you point out you know challenges that people face when they don't have counsel we'll file motions that are challenging judges uh, for misconduct during the course of a trial and asking for a new trial we'll file challenges based on the impartiality of the court proceedings or prosecutorial misconduct we'll file prosecutorial misconduct uh and and that uh, the idea that a judge would call somebody in and say withdraw brief is you know that that line like this is not like uh, the the kind of disproportionate nature of the termination decision is is wild to me you know it's it's totally wild but it's also it's extra it's extraordinary for us right and it, i think it would be ex because we happen to practice in places where we have some more flexibility we all have you know independence issues we still have to be concerned about what we say with regard to de blasio for example because the city is a funding source but we still do what we need to do because we feel empowered and we feel protected but there's yeah. this large swaths of the country where what happened in Montgomery County is the real fear. And so it's not just 
these out of court, again, this was in court, but these, these out of like normal court proceedings, you know, filings, it's, it's practitioners being concerned to file those legitimate claims about prosecutorial abuse and bias and uh, constitutional challenges and filing a habeas writ for abusive discretion against a judge who said bail on a, on a person who wasn't able to afford it. Yeah. And that's just not happening, not because defenders and practitioners are bad or don't care, but because they're systemic actors and they actually have, given the way the system is set up, they have to be concerned for all of the other people who they're representing because they're coming in front of the same judges and their funding is being provided by the same people. Um, it's, it's just a, it's a, it's, a, it's a system and it's a way the system's organized that just has to change. And again, my, uh, my hope is that they're reinstated, but on top of that, where it really serves as this kind of clarion call for the need to change things, not just in Montgomery County, but shed light on the fact that this is a problem in far too many places. I, I, we know you have to uh, head out soon, but we wanted to pivot to one last uh, topic before you go, Scott, and that is uh, the intersection of the work that you've been doing there in Brooklyn on pretrial representation, pretrial justice, bail reform, and the in the nexus with the pandemic that we're uh, confronted with right now and, and how it impacts uh, the people that we serve and the work that we do. So this is, you know, this is new in the sense that I've, I've never experienced like a, you know, pandemic like this, but I also, it just makes me think about every, how every single summer uh, it's brutally hot in jail and prison and air conditioners don't work every single winter. It's freezing cold in uh, the jails and prisons where the people I represent are housed or are caged. You know, last year um, was out uh, in, in front of federal prison where I, I don't practice there, but, but rallying for the thousands of people held in uh, the Metropolitan Detention Facility who didn't have heat for a week. Um, I think about how when there's flooding, um, the people who are most at risk of dying are those who are stuck in cages. So we're always overlooking the, the, the kind of the system, the government always is overlooking the people who are incarcerated, the people who we represent, because they're for the same reason that they're able to set bail on them in the first place. They're not humans. Uh, they're less than. And uh, so they're able to be treated this way. I mean, in, in terms of this particular virus, you have this, this horrific scenario where everyone in the world and right now this is being told except by trump but you've got to wash your hands you've got to use hand sanitizer to stem the spread you've got to stay far away from other people you don't want to be in crowded areas and you've got jail conditions that where there are thousands of people in very close quarters they're not allowed to use hand sanitizer because it had because the alcohol content makes it prison prison and jail contraband um they're made to they're actually being cordoned off and made to sleep very close together, head to toe, and there's no place to go. The other news that just came out, which is just just absolutely horrific, is that yesterday, without any sense of kind of irony or self-awareness, Governor Cuomo came out and announced that uh, there's going to be soon a surplus of hand sanitizer where there was no hand sanitizer because prisoners, as he called them, uh, were making... We're, we're producing tons of sanitizer that they were not going to be able to use for 16 cents an hour. Um, and so pivoting then to this now opportunity, I guess, there's this, there, I'm always looking, and I think we always as public defenders have to be looking for opportunities to try to get 
people outside the system to have empathy, to um, feel the pain, trauma, cruelty that's inflicted every day in the bodies of the people who we represent. And for, for I think for, with this this crisis, this pandemic, um, people are people are, have this sense of outrage because they they feel how scared they feel. They feel how uh, terrified and the, of the unknown. Uh, they, they feel this terror of the unknown, and they feel this kind of this germophobia. And then to imagine that there are thousands of people locked up in small quarters and they can't even wash their hands. There's a shortage shortage of soap. Um, and, and on top of that, they're forced to make the soap for the people on the outside but can't use it themselves. There's this there's this uh, this this moment that I'm seeing on, on both social but also in traditional media of people who otherwise wouldn't really care starting to be like, huh, this is outrageous. This isn't fair. And not questioning, okay, why are these people in jail? What are they charged with? What are they convicted of? But just like, that's not right. And in terms of defender's role, I think this is, this underscores, this underscores the need for the kind of independence that Dean and Keisha were, were fired, fired for lack of. Defenders right now are across the country. There was a Manuraju out in San Francisco. Our office is in, in, in New York. Um, David Patton, the head federal defender in New York. Uh, we're the ones who are stepping out, calling on the Departments of Corrections and the Board of Corrections uh, to give us reports on what's going on. We're calling on our leaders to tell us what the plan is for these human beings who are at high risk of dying. And um, we're also thinking about ways in court to get more people out um, by making the argument that there's a change in circumstance. Whereas before, a person's locked up pretrial and bail they can't afford, um, already they shouldn't be because that's excessive bail. But the change in circumstance now is on top of that, you have to balance the fact that is the possibility and high risk of death, um, does that does that outweigh um, kind of the minimal need to ensure that this person returns to court in certain cases? And so we're also, I think, collectively right now thinking of the ways to decrease ways to decarcerate, um, uh, kind of uh, tying in this this disease. But I think I would go a step further. Even that then gives us an opportunity to talk more broadly about bail. Um, and about the the kind of cruelty and injustice of pretrial detention. Um, I'm trying to tie uh, now Governor Cuomo and de Blasio's efforts to roll back bail reform that was just enacted two months ago um, and say that, you know, what they're actually arguing for is to send more people into conditions that can lead to the kind of horrors that they're facing right now. That's what they're actually calling for, and it's hopefully going to have some kind of an impact. So... We're doing everything we can, um, and and it just underscores the role of defenders in this in crises like this, but just more broadly systemic injustices that need fixing. All right, Scott, thank you so much for coming on Aider and Better. We we appreciate it, and we hope that you'll come back and talk to us some more. Yeah, I think we're going to make you an Aider and a Better regular. And um, you and you passed the test. <laughs> you 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 made it. I, I, you just named the date and the time. I'm back on. That was too short. Let's talk more. And. Uh, <laughs> and for those of you out there that want to follow uh, Scott on Twitter, it's at Scott Heck, S-C-O-T-T-H-E-C-H. He's a great follow. And we encourage you to follow Aider and a Better on Twitter and Avi at, at Avininder and me at, at the Sajid A. Khan. Thanks, and everybody. Thanks so much. 
We'll talk to you next time.